So welcome everyone to another episode of Free Lunch, where we at Asylum Center try to get together and talk about interesting issues of the day. Uh, today's a pleasure to have with us Judge Glock, Policy and Research Director of the Cicero Institute. And we're going to discuss one of his recent pieces and on National Review talking about the mismeasurement of polarization. Yeah. Judge, welcome to Free Lunch. Oh, thank you so much. But National Affairs, too. So national Affairs, say, sorry, what did they say? He said National Review. Oh, wow. It's a national million different things. So Great, sorry. Course, so. <laughs> Fair enough, just in case you, anyone was curious to how to find it. But uh, yeah, National Affairs, mismeasurement of polarization. Uh, so yeah, I'm just going to start, I, I might as well start off and explain the piece a little bit. Uh, so it emerged a little bit out of my research. I do a lot of research in the history of policy. Uh, one of the things anyone who researches policy in America obviously understands is there's been a gradual increase in government intervention, of course, across numerous spheres of American life, most importantly economic, but uh, across a lot of different aspects as well. And uh, this conflicted with a different literature I was reading that's very prominent in uh, the political science departments and frankly in, uh, in the general media which is that uh, there's been this increased polarization in politics that's been driven largely uh, by increasingly conservative Republicans that's moved our politics increasingly to the right, especially over the past 40 years. And you know, when I looked at this literature, it seemed to not jive with that general history of policy development we've seen in America about a fairly steady, fairly gradual increase in government intervention, a gradual move to what we would largely describe as the left, uh, most especially in economic spheres, and uh, you know, frankly, a largely bipartisan move. Both parties have participated in this. Both parties have seemed to, during their times in power, expanded government, expanded the reach of uh, the government, and moved in a leftward direction on a lot of social issues. Everything from uh, you know, gay marriage, as I described uh, in the piece, things like uh, gay and transgender rights protection. Uh, so the that sort of contradiction led me to to write the piece. And I kind of framed it around this general problem uh, that drives a lot of, or this general framing that drives a lot of the discussion. And this is this now famous uh, Keith Poole and, and Howard Rosenthal's uh, DW nominate score. And this score purports to show exactly sort of how liberal or how conservative every US congressional representative has been since 1789. And that score is what drives a lot of this sort of political scientists and intelligentsia discussion about the rightward move of the Republican Party, the general rightward drift of politics in general, and that score kind of shows exactly, well, you know, parties were very divergent back in, say, the 19th century. Democrats were extremely liberal. Republicans were very conservative. They kind of moved to the center again in the mid-20th century, and then they diverged again, starting around the 1970s, again, driven largely by conservative Republicans. And so I show, well, if you account for policy, it doesn't really make sense, again, because you see this gradual drift in what's considered the baseline uh, for both parties of more intervention, more uh, taxation, more spending in general. And, you know, just to review obvious examples, you know, Medicare and Medicaid was obviously unimaginable in 1900. Nobody was had a serious grand proposal for large percentage of U.S. gross domestic product spent on health care for the elderly and the indigent. Uh, but by 1990, no party was seriously proposing getting rid of it, let alone generally limiting it. Uh, so that kind of one example, but there's many, many others I show in the piece about this kind of gradual leftward direction of U.S. policy. And uh, so I think we need to reframe the sort of idea a lot of people have in political science and in the, uh, the sort of public press about where our politics is moving. And I think, you know, it's pretty tough to argue that generally it's moved from the left with the few exceptions that I've talked about in the piece. But, you know, happy for pushback on that. Let, 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 me, let me start with a question on the actual measure, just to yeah. clarify to, to people listening what the measure does. Yeah. Uh, can you describe a little bit how the, 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 the DW nominate uh, uh, score actually comes up and how you would create a measure that sh shows more polarization even though the baseline has shifted, as, as you pointed out? Yeah, so the, the score originally was this, um, what Poole and Rosenthal created, they got a big grant from the National Science Foundation back when they were both at Carnegie Mellon, and they input into their database every single vote from every member of Congress for the past 200 plus years. Amazing achievement, very useful for all sorts of researchers. But then they kind of scored it on this baseline for each individual com uh, Congress. So they said, you know, you can generally understand each individual Congress, who's on the left and who's on the right. And they say, well, you know, who's going to be voting most generally with those in the far left extreme? And then we're going to score them by how much they vote with, say, 
you know, a more Bernie Sanders type versus how much they vote with, a, say, a Ted Cruz type, and then we're going to measure them in the same Congress. But then the trickier question is, okay, well, how do we measure this across time? And they do that by taking this general political science truism, which is that congressmen, quote, tend to die in their ideological boots. They tend to be surprisingly consistent uh, across their careers, which uh, often surprise people. You think of politicians kind of just going with the, the flow and change their votes, whatever the interest group is. But you see that this is generally true, and I agree with this, that most of the time they vote kind of their preferences similar to uh, what their kind of average of their cohort or group was. They, you know, if Ted Cruz votes with uh, Orrin Hatch or something a lot, he's going to in 2015, he's going to vote for him a lot, uh, with him a lot in 2019, or whatever it is. And they take that, and then they can kind of compare it with bridge members. And sorry to get too much in the weeds here, but you asked, Carlos, so I might as well. <laughs> uh, so you say, well, I, the example I use, say uh, Senator Kate Bailey Hutchinson, a Texas senator, was replaced with Senator Ted Cruz. And you say Kate Bailey Hutchinson voted with Orrin Hatch, say, 70% of the time. And we all agreed on kind of the baseline assumption that Orrin Hatch was more conservative than Kay Bailey Hutchinson, then he, she's replaced with Ted Cruz. And Ted Cruz now votes with Orrin Hatch, say, 90% of the time. And so now you can make a score that says, you know, whatever the exact number is, Ted Cruz is X percent more conservative than Kay Bailey Hutchinson. And you can do that back, you know, right back to 1789 and James Madison sitting in the first Congress and everybody else. Well, he's replaced with somebody that tends to vote with somebody else that's about the same level. And so you create that and you create this kind of general number and they have, say, a one number score. Uh, Senator George Pendleton from 1870 is a, uh, I forget what it was, a negative 0.42 or whatever on the liberal scale. The negative is the more liberal, the positive is the more conservative, just you know, semi-random, but that's the measure they use. And so you can measure every single member of Congress uh, across time on how conservative and how liberal they are using this kind of, this measure of, they tend to be consistent, plus compare them with bridge members that uh, that vote when, uh, when they leave office. And so... That's the general measure. There's a lot of validity to it in terms of, you know, showing who tends to move with uh, kind of like-minded politicians. But if you're not comparing that baseline, as I suggest, it's really, you know, and, not meaningless but difficult. Right. So the baseline, just again, a final point here is that the baseline being um, what Orrin Hatch votes on. If you're voting on things that now are significant to the left of Warren Hatch before, then it's not surprising that whomever replaces Cage Bailey Hutchinson will be voting with Hatch more often because the things they're being asked to vote on are more to the left of that particular point in the spectrum that you're that you're measuring against. Exactly. So okay. the example I used uh, in the article too was this uh, surprising Warren Hatch vote for uh, bans on gay and transgender discrimination in the workplace in 2013. Uh, now, anyone who, one, considered Orrin Hatch an extreme conservative, and two, considered like this supposed gradual rightward uh, tilt in the Republican Party over the past 40 years should wrestle with an issue like that. Because, you know, not only was this not an issue that Orrin Hatch would have voted for in, in 1970-something when he came into office, it wasn't even on the, the agenda. Right. Nobody would have imagined a vote on transgender and gay rights in the workplace in 1979. And so clearly, by that measure, as in many, many others, he was moving to the left over the course of his career, gradually, and along with most other people in Congress. But there was that gradual shift. And so, yes, if now Ted Cruz or something comes in, and even if he doesn't vote for that particular measure, he's sharing that general leftward tilt of most U.S. policies over the same time period. And that just needs to be accommodated. If we're going to talk about, if we're going to use the terms right or left with any sort of semi-reasonable objective meaning, we have to account, like, well, how the policy itself is shifting over time. Can we use that same reasonable objective meaning? This started. This topic started when you said, "You know, I'm going to disagree with your piece." No. And, uh, <laughs> I most of all agree with it. I mean, I agree with it that there's um, something interesting and useful about the measure that they're using, and it doesn't measure what they think they're measuring. Um, and so, if that's the thesis, then I think there is an agreement. <laughs> but then there's another thing about well, how should we really think about leftward or rightward movement? It, it, it seems like what that's a measure of is something like partisanship or party affiliation or strength of affiliation with a faction or something like that. And like, yeah, that goes up and down and has gone up and down. And it can go up or down regardless of how the policies, you know, a country keeps getting more socialist, less socialist, more this, more that, and that could be happening and they don't necessarily correlate. Um, but then if we say, well, what's actually happening is we're moving leftward. If by leftwards what we mean is we're getting more socialist, then I think, yeah, we've been doing that. But I don't know that we need a, a word that's like one of our two hand directions 
from more socialism, not from more socialists. Um, so the countries are getting more socialists, but that doesn't in encapsulate all the changes that have happened. So like where we are on gay rights or racism or abortion is like neither here nor there from the socialist capitalist direction. So if we're packaging like all the changes that are happening, um, I I don't think they are in a direction, or at least I'm skeptical of that. Like, so is prohibition of intoxicating substances a left or a right position? Like, you know, in the 1920s, it was a left position. When it was a position favored by the same people who favored women's suffrage and stuff like that. Now it's, I guess, more of a, more favored by people who like lower taxes, but not exactly. And it's like these, and what about abortion? Abortion uh, wasn't always hated by the same people who wanted lower taxes. And um, these things reflect um, the political factions of the time. And I don't know that one could measure them over centuries or decades and think of them as a direction. And left by left, what we mean is something like people who are for change. And by right, we mean people who are resistant to change. And that all the people who want to change things up at a given time will be going with whatever thing might be happening with change. And so then, by definition, we're going to drift left. Um, so I'm skeptical of the using left over time, unless we just mean more socialists. But then, like, then let's just say more socialists. We've got more socialists. No, no, it's a very good point, and I largely agree with you on that one too. So, but the two, the two well, slight supposed to be disagreeing. No, no, no. Here, <laughs> give me, give me a second. We're supposed to be polarized. I'll, 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 we'll be polarizing in a second. We'll be gradually moving apart after the beginning of that sentence, the second clause will be us polarizing again. So uh, on one level, totally. It's, it's how useful are the terms left and right as, an, as sort of a descriptor of policy as opposed to, as you said, sort of just looking at a, you know, looking over people's heads at a cocktail party and whoever is your friend that's, and whatever your side is, that's the left or the right. That latter description is largely correct in the sense of, yeah, these kind of policy positions aren't easily placed on, you know, especially across time, off on a one-to-one -one spectrum. And I bring up a few examples, things like crime, things like uh, immigration, things like, uh, 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 you know, environment I didn't discuss, but other things like that. It's not easy to put those on sort of a left-right spectrum. And, you know, it, it's throughout a lot of American history, it, it wasn't placed on that spectrum. They said in Britain it was a little easier. They actually had you know a party that was called the Liberal Party and the party that was called the Conservative Party. Uh, you know you can call them Whigs and Tories or eventually Labour and Tories, but it's Liberal and Conservatives for a long time. Uh, and so whatever was Liberal Conservatives, what the Liberal or Conservative Party wanted, and that was pretty easy to, to agree with. Now the other so on that side we're on the same we're on the same page. Now the part where I push back is one of the things you do see in in the Poole and Rosenthal studies, which I think anyone who studies public policy uh, would largely agree with, is that the vast majority of votes and the easiest way to score people is on economic factors. So this is, you know, for all the sturm and drawing about, you know, fights over abortion and gay rights and these other things, I always tell people 99% of what people do in state legislatures and congresses go in there, vote on a budget, vote on a new program, vote on a new minimum wage, vote on this and that, and then that gets relatively little press relative to the other things, but that's the main sort of meat and potatoes of politics. And so when uh, Poole and Rosenthal do their scores, they admit that kind of their main score is about that. It's about an economic measurement. And they actually have these two kind of subsidiary score, this actually one <coughs> kind of subsidiary score, which they say is a little more based on social issues. So this is a little, it doesn't quite map onto liberal conservative uh, grouping in, say, the 1840s and 50s around slavery. There's another sort of divergence, I forget exactly when later, where it says, you know, around the civil rights and a little thing's environment later on. And so you can see kind of what they call these divergences. But surprisingly, that one basic economic measure captures a lot of people's votes. So if you are kind of liberal conservative in 1970 about economic policy, you are going to follow these other policies pretty closely. Um, but more importantly, you're mainly going to be voting on economic issues. And, you know, whether or not people call like a move to a more interventionist sort of government socialist or left, I mean, I think it's less important. But I think when people describe it in the press and in political science today, they have a clearer conception of what that means. They mean a supposedly more neoliberal order, an order where government is retreating, where conservatives are regnant in, you know, say, Schoesville affairs or others, and 
from their own definition, that seems harder to defend when you look at just the drift in policy. So we have three things. We have the public sentiment or the public opinion. We have the representatives, and then we have the policies. What's missing, and I don't know, um, you probably study it somewhere else, but voter turnout. Mm -hmm. So what happened to voter turnout as a percentage over history? Do we have data on that? Yeah, we have very good data on that. And uh, you see it kind of peaked actually in the late 19th century, where, you know, I forget the exact numbers, around 80% you know, of eligible voters turned out. Now, that meant largely white males at the time. Uh, almost all the property requirements were gone by that point. But white males you know, voted uh, overwhelming percentage. It dropped a lot uh, around the 1920s and 30s. And then it uh, kind of bounced up and down, hit a nadir of sort in the mid-90s, and it's been gradually heading upwards again. I forget the someone here maybe knows, but in the most recent election, 2020, it was the highest it had been in 30, 40 years. Uh, so the voter turnout uh, has changed. Uh, there was actually another piece in that same National Affairs uh, article, the one that just uh, was ahead of mine, that showed voter turnout actually didn't tend to favor one part or the other. Uh, so much, despite a lot of the discussion, either the Republicans say we're trying to suppress voter turnout and therefore you know benefit their party, or the Democrats were trying to expand it. Uh, but there's not a lot of evidence that the non-voter is substantially different today, at least from the voting public. So you know it's it's worth considering as a factor. I don't think changes in voter turnout are driving a lot of uh, the sort of changing baseline policy that we see. But it's uh, it's definitely worth considering at different times. It can be important. Uh, I mean, the other thing I mentioned, and I didn't discuss it too much in the piece, is just uh, if you look at polling. So, no, if you do the most recent polls on, say, social positions, there's no question everything from, uh, you know, abortions just move slightly more preferable to things like divorce, things like drug use, things like uh, 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 things like gay marriage, obviously, you know, overwhelmingly more acceptable among the populace than they were uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, let alone. And the other thing you can look at is, you know, economics. There, if you can poll on, say, you know, Obamacare, it was at the time it was, you know, slightly negative in terms of its polling when it was passed, and now there's very little sentiment for totally repealing it. Uh, and obviously, they're not even polling on something like, should you repeal Medicare or Medicaid? It's just <laughs> not on the table. It's just not an acceptable discourse. And, but if you're polling on it in 1964-65, that's a subject of debate. But again, once that's established as a policy, the new baseline becomes established, the public generally gets used to it, and they moved on to the next question of, well, how much more interventionist should the next program be? Uh, and that seems to be the drift of policy. Which is exactly why I asked about a voter turnout, because your entire premise is that the center is shifting left, right? And so if the center is lifting, uh, shifting left, the question is not who is voting, but who is not voting. Is there more uh, particular voters being alienated because like the the center has shifted so much left that they feel like okay so now Medicare Medicaid it's not even the discussion is no longer on the table I just exit from the voting pool right now mm -hmm. um, so is there something like this going on well it's the, uh, the undecided voters tend to be more as you imagine more centrist they're actually so it's not that they're the the fringes that are either extreme mm -hmm. libertarians or extreme socialists right. who aren't voting uh, those tend to vote, even if kind of, even as a as a good old economic kind of public choice model would predict right. that their preferences are a lot stronger for one side, and even if they don't get 100 percent of their preference, they're going to get a lot more with the equivalent conservative or Republican, uh, uh, liberal or conservative uh, politician they're voting in. The ones in the middle, the undecided voters, you know, as I as this other article kind of pointed out, they tend to be. You know, they tend to be pretty equally divided between the two sides right now. There seems to be a slight tendency that they tend to be a little more fiscally uh, conservative and a little more socially liberal, so mm -hmm. kind of in that sphere, but they're not strong uh, partisans one way or the other. So I, I don't think that's describing the shift. And again, if you look at the poll and the other stuff, uh, that seems to demonstrate the same general leftward shift, not like a gradual exclusion of part of the population from the sort of policy discussion. So the way you're phrasing the question makes it sound as though all the people who opposed the New Deal back when it was passed are like still there, but like they're not represented in politics anymore and they're annoyed. And so I'm still here, I'm against the New Deal. But, <laughs> but it, it's not like we're, there are very few of us, like most of the people who are opposed to it are dead or, and or have been talked out of that position. So it's, it's not 
parties that we have with the countries. And, and, and that's so, so like put into more technical terms again, right, is that the medium vote theorem is that something that we tend to agree that yeah. sort of works, right? And if the center is shifting uh, to the left, it's because the medium voter is shifting to the left. But it could be the case that the medium voter shifts to the left and you have a, a wider spread of the distribution. And that's, I think, the suggestion that uh, people like, uh, uh, that they use, that the political science literature tends to point at, in particular, talking about the right tail of the distribution, yeah. focusing on that because it's popular and it yeah. sells at universities. Yeah. Uh, but it could be that the distribution that the sort of spreads the same. Yeah. It's just that, you know, you might move in that way. And therefore, some people that are in the extremes there just look more extreme relative to the, the way the distribution is moving. Yeah, right? exactly. And so I think that is largely true. So, I mean, Morris Fiorina over at Stanford, a great political scientist, is a strong believer and has been that their, you know, the U.S. political position is largely a bell curve. If you look at most polling, most people describe themselves as moderates. There's a few people uh, on the left and right, and then a fewer people on the extremes, uh, just like you know the median voter kind of position would uh, theory would expect. And but uh, you know there's been a slight flattening of that curve, and therefore a slight spreading out of the extremes. There has been that over time. People have gradually moved to the corners more than they were. Uh, just 20, 30 years ago. Now, it's not extreme. It's still a bell curve. It's not what people say. When you look at votes in Congress, it is a bimodal distribution, meaning there's basically two peaks. There's the leftward peak and the rightward peak. But the median voter is kind of in the middle of those two. And you know, the median voter still rules even if most of Congress on the side, because the median voter is the one who votes for cinema or mansion. And exactly. And ultimately gets to decide <laughs> what policy is. Uh, and so, you know, the the polarization story in that sense is true. Both people, uh, the parties have tended to move apart. People have sorted into two different parties. You know, back in the day, it was very easy to be a conservative Democrat or a liberal Republican. That is less likely today. Again, there's a whole sort of literature uh, about in the 1950s and 60s, people wanted that to happen. They were very upset that these parties were all, as they said, confused and there wasn't people sorting ideologically like they thought they should. And now, of course, people are wringing their hands about the exact opposite <laughs> problem, that now we're all sorted and now we're much angrier at the other parties and so forth. So that, that story is true. We're more polarized. We're more sorted. Uh, we're slightly more on the sort of extremes of the contemporary sort of policy issues. Uh, but that all, again, is all dependent on the baseline. We're not on the extremes. I, I mentioned, you know, in other contexts, things about like, you know, the Paul Ryan budget, say circa 2010, 2011, which was this sort of a lot of sturm and drang around that. This was an extremist position. But if you look at that, it was somewhat to the right in terms of total spending levels of say where Bill Clinton was, say just in 1997, 1998. Uh, the politics had already shifted to the left over in the just past 10, 15 years about how interventionist the government should be. And you see that across a lot of different things, these things that were considered very extreme on one side or the other. And when they talk about extremism in some policy position, uh, it's like, well, what are you measuring the baseline against? That's incredibly important. And if you're saying someone who's talking about voucherizing, say, Medicaid, as Paul Ryan discussed back then, is that an extremist position? Well, you can call it that relative maybe to a median voter or something, but an extremist position in 1964 is an extremist position to the left. <laughs> like nobody, if you were talking about voucherizing a general medical support program, that was you. That puts you on the extreme left of a 1964 spectrum. And so you just need to think about that context when people are talking about you know where people and the parties are moving. I have a question. On, uh, you, you talked a lot about the, the, the dimensions of, of social uh, or uh, liberal or not, and economic liberal or not. But one dimension in which I, uh, I sort of tend, in my view, to, to go alongside of the economic one is whether we are in favor of the federalist system or not. And, and a lot of the, 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 the sort of uh, uh, things that I see happening these days, the movements that we see, is not necessarily right or left. It's just like taking away power from states. Um, and and is there any sort of measurement on that scale of that? Does it, it, would, you, would you just bundle that generally like, oh, that's movement to the left because the right has been the one always defending states' rights? Well, yeah, it's, it's again, and I guess this gets to your point about the, the, the problem with right or left because mm -hmm. obviously the Democrats were the big and there were people agreeing the New Deal were on the left, you know, in 1920s or 1930s, but they were still the party by many measures of states' rights because right. they were largely a, a Southern party, even if the New Deal had a centralizing tendency. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think... It's hard to argue that there's been a lot more centralization. One of the surprising things, if you actually look at the growth of government over the past 50 years, is that most of the growth has been in states and local governments. So the US federal government has stayed pretty consistent around 20% of gross domestic product. 
pretty much since 1950. You know, they have little bumps up and down a lot, but pretty stable about 20% of GDP. Now, a lot more of that is spent on things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and a lot less of that is spent on the military, which is you can divide into the right-left spectrum. But it's the total spending is pretty stable. What really has shifted is you've seen states and localities together took about 10% of gross domestic product, making you know a total government burden 30% or so of GDP back in the 1960s. Uh, and now that's closer to 40%. Uh, so most of the growth we've seen has been on that state level. But, 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 for those who say, well, that shows that we're not centralizing, we're giving a lot more powers to the states. Well, a lot of that has come from these federal grant programs that then require the local governments and state governments to match them and then grow. Even if the, the states are technically taxing and spending them, they're doing it to Medicaid is the most obvious example, which is you know now usually, if not the largest, it's neck and neck with education in most states is the largest state function. And even education is largely supported by federal grants, Title I and uh, Every Student Succeeds Act, the old uh, uh, No Child Left Behind Act. So the federal government is clearly getting a lot more involved in how the states operate and spend. As someone like me who spends a lot of time working on the state level, you can see this on every aspect of the state. You always have to consider what the federal government rules and regulation are spending on. But from this other level, you see just the growth in, in state and local governments, and there's just a lot more spending on that level. Uh, so, you know, how to measure that? I don't have a good sort of measurement but, of that sort but of. But there's a lot, lot of variability on that, no? I mean, even though on average, I mean, maybe the case that we're a total of forty percent, but but like, I checked recently, New York spends two dollars per every dollar that the state of Florida spends per citizen. So it's twice as big. Uh, I, I mean, I um, mean, so, so, you know, so the, the burden of, of state, yeah. uh, the burden of government in Florida is significantly lower than the burden of New York. So overall in the state, in the country, we might look at a 40% total, but it might be 50 more, in New York yeah, and 30 in the right, right. a certain amount of, of state independence, right? right, right. Which would be you have some authority to expand or shrink it. I think that's a little less than, than some people think. So, yeah, you measure Texas versus California, Florida versus others. Uh, that's partially for the fact that New York is an incredibly wealthy state <laughs> and they have a lot more money. And if you look at its percent of state domestic product, the amount of state, it's, it's a lot closer. And it also depends on how much the, the local governments spend versus the, the state governments. So Florida and other places, uh, the state, the local governments spend a lot more. The state governments spend a little less. New York, not surprisingly, the state government spends more, the local government spends less. If you put it together, there's a difference, but it's usually not 5% of GDP. It's usually 1% or 2% of GDP, which goes back to the other side, which would seem to indicate that the federal governments are ultimately pulling the strings and there's not so much authority states have to, uh, to expand or contract something. They can refuse Medicaid, and I forget, maybe someone knows how many of the states have now refused the Medicaid expansion. I want to say about 11 but in the end, whether it's a requirement or sort of a, a grant with strings attached where you're turning down free money, uh, the government has a lot of ways to incentivize states to expand spending. Uh, and most states, you know, if that's the bargain they're presented with, we're already paying the taxes, you know, we might as well get the grants from that. Uh, that makes sense for even a very conservative state often to say, let's, let's take the money. But if you're thinking of the federalism as a different levels of governance allowing you to experiment with different laws, then you definitely get more positive rhetoric on that from people who are Republicans than Democrats. But if you think of the um, experiments with doing it that have been most salient, right? They're marijuana legalization in sanctuary states and cities. And those, I mean, that's the cases where most obviously a state has bucked the national law or the national trend and tried to go its own way. And those are um, seen as left-leaning causes. Although now you're seeing it with the Texas abortion law, so you're getting uh, the rights getting in on the game. But, uh, and there might be other right-leaning ones in the past, but it's not only the one-sided game with the other ones. Yeah, every, everyone is all for federalism when it's somebody else's ox getting bored, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you can see this, obviously, in state by state. People are all for local control until it's their side uh, that they don't like when the local government's doing. Nothing makes hypocrites quicker than federalism in general. <laughs> uh, people, like, it, this goes for a lot of constitutional questions, but people tend to have very strong preferences on policy and weaker preferences on these general structural issues around the Constitution, everything. You know, luckily there's a lot of great people who stand by the constitutional or general sort of structural principles and 
don't waver as much on every particular thing. But yeah, I mean, example was prohibition. Where prohibition, there was a government restriction, the government law, the Volstead Act. But some states just said we're not enforcing that, and they people were pulling their hair out at the time. Say, how dare you? They said you're traitor states. You're not putting the. They said oh, it's it is a federal system. We don't require to put our police on the, the beat if we don't want to enforce it. And yeah, of course that was a, you know a lot of people on the left were in prohibition era were very angry about that. But uh, yeah, it's it's federalism. Who who's been you know on which side of this issue shifts very quickly. And yeah, that I wouldn't put too closely again, except on the spending side on uh, one party or one side or the other. So if you were to construct a measure that would compete with the Paul Rosenthal me measure, how would it be constructed? It would not exist. And so, <laughs> okay. you know, it, it's, I, I think, not that it's a total fool's errand, because again, like, uh, you know, others here said, it's, it's useful to kind of consider it, and maybe they're just not measuring exactly what they think they're measuring with it. Uh, I think you can say something like, yeah, for economics, pretty simple. Like, what sort of budgets are, if you're just doing something, what budgets you're voting for are, say, what, how many programs are you voting for that someone, say, in 1960 weren't voting for? Maybe you could do something like that. Uh, you could create some measure to show this guy is clearly more left or right than someone uh, from a previous era. But that gets very tricky very quick, and that's a lot of issues of, well, you know, was No Child Left Behind, left or right? Was this new version of it in 2015 more left or right? I, you know, I don't know. And I bring up a few other examples in the, the article about, say, crime and immigration, which is you also have to consider economics tends to be sort of an either or and the economy is moving in one direction and therefore the, the politics is kind of on the back of that and they have to get to decide. But things like Immigration, you know, I say, people say, well, you know, we moved to the right on immigration, say, post-1990. You see all these, you know, things of George H.W. Bush and Dukakis both celebrating immigrants and being very strong pro-immigration. And you see something like, you know, Bill Clinton, even in 1996, talking about the evils of immigration and the problems of illegal immigration, how we restrain this. Uh, but I was like, well, you have to consider even that, like what the baseline to the policy baseline is shifting on. If you have three times more immigrants a percentage of the population than you did in 1970 and you're saying well I want to get back to say a 1980 level of immigration in the country or say illegal immigration does that put you on the right or left of what someone is in 1970 in 1970 you know we had the lowest proportion of immigrants basically in our entire history we had less than five percent of our population immigrants now legal immigrants are around 14 percent of the population so from that measure, like even the most right-wing Republican is not saying anything as ant couldn't make the country as anti-immigrant as a policy level mm -hmm. as a left-wing pro-immigration person is in 1980, say. Mm -hmm. And the same thing, like uh, on crime, people say, well, you know, we're getting much more liberal, right on crime, allied with the the new Jim Crow, sort of on the left. Says, well, we have more than two million people in prison right now, and even if you're an extreme sort of, you know supposedly left-wing, let's you know, reduce sentences, let's get people out of jail, you probably couldn't create any system that would get as few people in prison as there were in 1975, when there was you know, about half a million people in prison. Uh, so how do you measure that like, you know, right or left sort of swing? I, I, you can't, and this, gets to your, this is like we don't know how to measure that sort of shift when the, the, you know, the sort of policies are, the sort of society is shifting under our feet. Well, part of, I don't think it's an issue of not knowing how to measure. I think it's a confusion in thinking there's one thing there to be measured. And this is why I don't like, I like the right-left terminology as names for things, but I don't like it as names for directions in which the things can move. Because I don't think we, um, there's not enough correlation between what the reasons for and the nature of the stands are for there to be coherent moves in a direction. And what I worry about is um, what it means when you talk about the Democratic Party moving left, or the Republican Party moving right, or the Republican Party moving left. And if these terms have any meaning left and right, they come from kind of the common parlance and how they're used. Because if we're being technical political scientists, we have other terms we could use. We could say socialist or interventionist or something like that. So who thinks like that um, Donald Trump is to the left of Mitt Romney? No, everyone who uses the words left and right thinks he's more to the right. But on uh, all the economic issues, I mean, he's way to the left of Mitt Romney. I mean, way pro more spending, 
Uh, he wants to keep, you know, you can keep your socialized medicine or you know, keep Obamacare. He wants to change the name or whatever, but doesn't want to get rid of the, the individual mandate, which the Republicans didn't want in the previous election. So if we're talking about the economic issue, we have to use this term in a way that says not only is the country swinging leftwards and the Republicans swinging leftwards, but the Republicans rapidly swung leftwards in the past five years during a period when everybody thinks they swung rightwards. We could say that, and we could say we mean something different by left and right, and maybe we should. But since the terms are so vague in the first place, um, there is a phenomenon that people who say the Republicans have swung to the right are on about. What they mean is they're more insular, they're more, um, you know, my team and the other team's awful or whatever mm -hmm. than they were 10 years ago. And maybe that's all there is to mean by left and right, how affiliated you are with your group and angry at the other group. Uh, and we need other terms to describe the policy shift. Right. Yeah. They've shifted towards a more interventionalist socialist, less, more anti-immigration, more neutral on issues like gay marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that, that seems right. And that, that jives with the general literature about just polarization writ large, which is, you know, you see these horrifying few polls about, you know, would I, do you fear the other party? Would you not want your children to marry a member of the other party? Uh, you know, and these were tiny percentages uh, back in you know, 1996, and now they're not just double digits, 20, 30% of Democrats and Republicans say, I wouldn't want my kids to marry someone from the other party. Yeah, so today's guess who's coming to dinner, you wouldn't <laughs> care what race the person was, but if it was a Democrat and you're a Republican, or a Republican and you're a Democrat, you'd have that movie. Oh, exactly, and maybe that's just the eternal desire for an in-group outcome, but exactly, you know, it, you read 1960, you know, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not you'd sit with a Jewish person or a Catholic, and now that's not even a discussion, but exactly, people would have qualms about sitting with a Democrat or Republican. So one of the things that, that people describe as the sorting relates to the sort of vertical integration of a lot of these views. So back in the day, it was not just easy to be a liberal Republican, but a, it was very easy to be a Protestant or Catholic Republican, it was very easy to be a white or black Republican, it was very easy to be a bunch of these things. And what we see in the sorting literature is there tends to be a unification of a lot of these different identities. So if you are a Democrat, you are much more likely to be a minority, non-religious, these thing and this thing. And if you're a Republican, you tend to much more strongly like to be an evangelical, to be religious, to be white, to be actually at this point, uh, lower education level. And those things have sort of sorted. And there's also kind of psychological literature about this that just like you are more strong Irish and you are more strong Catholic if you are an Irish Catholic. Mm -hmm. So if you have both these things combined, you tend to be much stronger in both. If you are, say, Jewish Irish, you are actually kind of little less strong Jewish and a little less strong Irish. So in one sense, that sorting vertically into these bunch of concatenated ideologies makes all of those stronger. So people feel that the other party is not just representative of you know, political views, it's also representative of your social sphere and these other issues that they have problems with. So yeah, all of that, all of that is true. And yeah, maybe that doesn't correlate, correlate left and right easy. And so, so each of these issues should be less sort of described by that term, described individually. What I described too is, you know, the argument that Republicans were ultra conservative in the 19th century, their single biggest issue was the tariff. <laughs> you know, we think of that as sort of an interventionist position. And even say five, six years ago, we would have thought of that as a republic, it was a democratic position, that they were the anti-free trade party and the Republicans were the free trade party. I mean, That's shifted on a dime now. I don't know, a few issues you could make from the issue that the Republicans were the liberals of the 19th century. I mean, it's just, the tribes have moved enough that it's a coin yeah, which with, you would identify with right. Yeah, yeah, and so the original, like kind of basis of a lot of this original thing was the Americans for Democratic Action group kind of started with Eleanor Roosevelt and some others in the 1940s. They had this scoring system where they scored every member of Congress on a zero to 100 scale. If you vote for us uh, all the time, you're 100, and if you vote for us another time, zero. And political scientists and reporters have used similar versions ever since as kind of a way to score. You're, if you're with ADA, you're on the left, and if you're with the other side, on the right. But of course, that's just whatever the American for Democratic Action says is on the left and right. And so, yeah, that's it, you know, just like in breaking where if you're the liberal or conservative, that's because you're with the party you're with. Uh, so yeah, that, I mean, that's that's generally true. Uh, we just have to make sure that in the areas when people are using it descriptively today for the sort of things that we would think of generally now as on the left or the right, then you have to sort of push back on that idea that we've seen, well, if you're talking about left or right as size of government and the economy, one of the biggest issues, then you have to say, okay, clearly left. 
from those metrics. Again, sort of Donald Trump fits into that. So given that Trump came up, uh, <laughs> let me bring up a, a, another source of disagreement that Greg and I have in particular. So being a brown male, um, non-religious Republican <laughs> that I am, <laughs> uh, it, it puts me not in the vertical integration of the category. Somebody that's proud to fly an American flag in my house. And in my neighborhood, it's like these days a, a, like an aberration. It's just literally, I live a one mile away from the university and it's an aberration. Having an American flag in your house makes you like, whoa, weird. I literally cannot put a political sign in my, in my yard. It's something that you know, I fear for the secure, safety of my car and my children. <laughs> but but so, so in that sense, um, I want to bring up this notion of what I'm agreeing with you in terms of where the, where, where the, the, the sort of radicalism is, right, in the sense of uh, where the center has shifted to the left a lot. Um, when arguing with Greg in the past four, few years, and in particular around the 2020 election, I'm sort of feeling, feeling vindicated right now by the fact that I look back and I look at the, forget about the rhetoric, because that's, I think, a lot of times here, and you point that out in your piece, that we confuse rhetoric with actual substance and policy. The rhetoric of the last four years were horrendous, and there's nothing that I'm gonna say that say, okay, that was a good man in the White House, no. However, when it comes to policy, even in the things that were, he was very uh, uh, to the left of what I prefer, right, in trade and immigration and so on, the reality on the ground shifted very little. If you look at the bills that got passed in the Trump years, they are bills that Bill Clinton would have signed. Like the two most consequential bills of the Trump years was a tax cut that was like middle of the road, chamber of commerce that again, I could have seen bill that puts us in the category of European countries in corporate tax. That's what it was. That was that bill. And a criminal uh, uh, justice reform bill that was very much bipartisan and, and you know, with support from libertarians all the way to, to the left, very extreme, extreme left. So as far as actual policy, we're talking about Bill Clinton. Trump was no different than Bill Clinton in a lot of different ways. Meanwhile, now we elected a moderate in Joe Biden. You know, good Joe, moderate. And the, the, I, today I spend my morning reading and analyzing through Casey Mulligan. If you haven't done that, uh, uh, take a look at Casey Mulligan's writings on the 2,400 pages of the reconciliation bill. He went on very carefully on everything. I mean, this is, this is not even, this is radical. It's, 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 it's like something on, it's not about the level of 3.5 trillion to, that's not the issue. The issue, the issues being considered inside of that, the sort of ignoring completely everything we have learned about incentives and how incentives change behavior and so on. It, it, the list goes on and on and on to a point where we're talking about, you know, tax credits for, for companies that produce a car under union rules versus non-union rules. So it, it, it things like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, it's incredibly radical, and we're one vote away of that thing passing. Yeah, I maybe mean, not. So, so, so in, again, in substance, the people who are labeled moderate are pushing forward things that are incredibly radical. Versus, like in the last four years, where it seemed that we lived under this sort of like authoritarian cloud of fear. It's like, well, well what actually happened? Well, nothing. Yeah, I mean, and I and I agree, of course, and I, I don't want to get into Trump rhetoric <laughs> and stuff because, of course, as, as you say it. It was it's hard to defend. Horrendous. But, like, <laughs> um, you know, it, whatever your policy positions on uh, in general, like, yeah, you have to say the four years of Trump were surprisingly inconsequential in terms of their outcomes. Yeah, I, I always say when people talk, uh, you know, the uh, about extremism in general, well, let's look at one of the biggest issues in the past 50 years in American politics is the top marginal tax rate, how much we tax the rich. And you see either destroying entrepreneurs on the, the left or where, or sorry, on the right, or you see uh, people saying we're giving tax breaks and handouts to the rich on the left. This is how the top marginal tax rate has gone for the past 50, uh, 30 years or so. 39.6, 35, 39.6, 37. It's, <laughs> it's moved like this back and forth, this tiny sort of movement one way or another. And actually you can say, well, there's been this uh, added the, I think it's the 3.9% sort of bonus on top. So there's been the same gradual shift for the left. And again, even the Trump tax cuts, the it was down to 37, which wasn't sure. as low as the Bush tax cuts, which was the 35%. And as you say, sort of the first step back was this further sort of like liberalization of the, uh, of the crime and punishment sort mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a lot of left or rightward shift. It was in fact, yeah, kind of the same and even social issues, you know, pro-gay marriage, whether outside of immigration, 
uh, was which nothing much happened during the entire Trump period. And I had an earlier version of the article. You had the same bout number of uh, new permanent residents during yeah. Trump as you did in the you know Obama. The, the, H1, the H-1B visas went down a bit. Yeah. I think like that, 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 that was a few. Yeah, again, but for the rhetoric, just yeah, like, you, you, like you, oh, you, right. you have a few things. They had a little H-1B visas, refugees, which were about 100,000. They could peek out at the Obama thing and got down to, you know, around 18, 20,000. Yeah. But, you know, we have about the numbers here but it's about you know one to two million new permanent residents every year in the united states all those things tens of thousands whatever are definitely on the margin that barely changed during the trump years yeah most of this didn't change and so toward the big sort of 3.5 trillion thing i think you can rightfully say this is extreme in the sense of this is very far to the left of where the position was just five years ago two years ago even let's say for both parties but you see a similar sort of thing when you see there's similar kind of punctuated equilibrium and evolution, when you look at policy change, it's not this, it is this kind of gradual steady leftward trend, but what you see is big jumps. So what you see a massive jump in the progressive era, a huge jump during the New Deal, and a huge jump again during the 1960s. And then again in Obama. Well, then again, yeah, recently you can see this huge jump to the left. And what you see uh, is those are surprisingly, except kind of outside the Obama thing, bipartisan. So Medicaid, Medicare, mm-hmm. expansion of Social Security, even the Economic Opportunity Act, both Republicans and Democrats voted for that in the 1960s. Uh, Democrats and Republicans were closer in the 1930s than they were actually ever before, and so Republicans voted for a lot of the Social Security and so on. And even the most recent expansion of spending, I mean, you can talk, uh, rightfully, the, the Republicans are very concerned about the $3.5 trillion, and they obviously voted very against the $1.9 trillion previous stimulus bill, but they voted together in lockstep for the 2000, uh, sorry, the March 20, 2020 CARES Act, mm-hmm. almost unanimously, which was another, I forget the number of trillions, but it was trillions. <laughs> it was in the trillions. It was in the trillions, too. And then they both voted for a December 2020 right. Right. expansion of the stimulus. That's 1.4. And so both sides were, this. if you would pose either of those things in 2019, that would have been off the table. It's far too extreme, far too expensive, far too deficit finance and so forth. And then we're talking about, well, both parties now are for a lot, lot more spending. And, well, the Republicans just want to spend, you know, $4 trillion more trillion in these years. And the Democrats want to spend, you know, now $6, 7000000000000 trillion or whatever. And, like, that is, like, clearly a move in that direction. But Republicans participated in that shift. Mm-hmm. And it's just, well, you know, now that it gets a little trickier when you get out of the dollar figures and get into the sort of policies. Right, you right. And that, that's what I said, yeah, focusing Which is, on, like, right. if you look at the, the bill, there is a host of policies that are, you know, I think Tyler Cohen and some other, and Arnold Kling pointed out, you know, aren't being discussed, you know, basic massive free childcare, changes to union rules, and we've been so focused on the dollar figure that we haven't noticed that this is a host of changes in U.S. public policy that debated for The decades. structure of it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah. haven't even mm-hmm. come across. But, you know, that goes to the similar general thing. You know, the idea that, as you said, you know, Biden, who was for most of his career, kind of in the center of the Democratic Party, and now is kind of obviously to the right of what you would say the squad or whatever that the progressive caucus is on some levels is far 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 to the left of what yeah bill clinton are uh you know, or even obama, obama was you know, yeah. that's been the direction of policy and again greg's points take well taken that like it's hard to right, get, right. but from the main things of what government does and what's happening like that is clearly where the direction is going you can be for or against that and you know some of the people that you know have liked and talked about my piece or like matt iglesias and David Shore and others are leftists. They're saying, "Look, you guys should be semi-happy with what you know, judge is showing here. This is that we've moved, we've succeeded to some mm-hmm, level, mm-hmm. and you don't have to be say this is a terrible thing, uh, but you just have to realize that that's the reality of how policy has changed in the last twenty years. And if you do that, you can't say, well, the Republicans have just become right ex- right-wing extremists. They've just even if they stayed completely stable, which I show I think is the fairest kind of idea, even fairest for kind of the right-wing extreme." Those have been the people that have just the, the centers moved far away from them. Can you imagine someone standing up, uh, you know, what you know, Biden said in the 19, or I think it's David Schumer, Schumer said in 2009, you know, illegal immigration is 100% evil and, you know, it's wrong. We need to fight against this. But, you know, you just wouldn't hear that sort of rhetoric or policy about we need 100% or the, say, the Secure Fence Act 2006, where... Obama and a lot of Democrats voted for a big border wall, <laughs> effectively, and that's completely off the table now, obviously, because how that's uh, how the politics has shifted on that. And so, you know, that that changing shift has to just incorporate all of what we think of when we think about changing politics. 
I wonder if these kinds of things that are called extremism on the right, um, and you can take the similar case on the left uh, in the in the eighties or nineties, right? Um, this kind of polarization around social issues, this kind of um, what what the the leftist sort of extremism on the right, isn't it really more of a symptom of the right having rolled over on economic issues? That is, you can't really. I mean. The Republicans can pretend to be against the 3.9 tri uh, trillion stimulus, but they're not really. They're not. You know, they're not against. They might be against some of what's in it, but they're not against spending a lot. No, they showed that last year. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So then they um, voted exactly. Yeah. They voted for another trillion. Yeah. 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 There. Yeah. Socialized so. medicine, which yeah, yeah. Ford, Bush expanded. Ob Obamacare, as you pointed out, is a yeah. bipartisan yeah. thing now. Yeah. So yeah. they're not against any of this, but they got to be against something. <laughs> the other ninety four. And so you get this kind of rhetoric. And, and I think the, it's true, not that much happened uh, statutorily you know, during the Trump years. I don't think much would happen statutorily during the Hillary Clinton years. Uh, either, what if that is, yeah, I don't think that much about what the law is is gonna change based on who won that election. But what I see that election as, uh, what I see as really important is the primaries of the election, more than the elections. And I saw Trump representing the Republicans rolling over on free markets altogether. That is embracing. It's like Bernie Sanders won the Republican primary rather than the Democratic primary, and now the Republicans aren't a force against this as they could have been and were more in the nineties. Um, but that's a topic of. I mean, one really I think interesting political science topic, and I'm not a political scientist, is the the respective effects of primaries versus generals. Like, what really shapes the direction of a party? Is it more who wins the primary and then what they win and lose? Uh, I, in general, think primaries have more to do with where the country is going than who wins close elections, and my most elected difference. Well, the, the general idea that politicians tend to die in their ideological boots, which is largely correct, and I agree with, does show that the main issue is who gets into office, therefore. Uh, and that once you get beyond a primary, you get into a general election, what the political scientists show is partisanship just overwhelms everything. So in the sense of, yeah, once you get to the point where someone has a D or an R next to their name in a general election, you know, you got a few people in the middle who are going to decide it, but most of the story is already kind of baked into stone. And so, yeah, the primaries are where people actually have a little more discretion about where it's surprising in a sense about who gets into office. And so, yeah, that's where a lot more of the sort of policy differences play out uh, that rather than they do in the general election where partisanship sort of decides all. It's, it, I mean, I think at one level, we're seeing a lot more trend to what we have or had for a lot of the 20th century in Europe, which was division between a social democratic party and the Christian Democrats often, which was you had the Christian Democrats were not free marketers in the sense of say, either early 19th century Democrats in America, which were free marketers or, you know, say mid-century Republicans or something. They were a semi-socialistic communitarian party that was emerging out of the Catholic church that said, you know, you can go back to the 1893 rerum novarum, which, well, we need these social structures to an uh, economic justice to control the free market, and we don't really believe in that. We're not going to go as extreme as the social democrats, but we're basically going to agree with them, but we're going to disagree, yes, exactly, on these host of social issues. We're going to be anti-more divorce legislation, anti-abortion, and so forth. And that was the division those two parties in most of the West, someone like Conrad Adenauer versus, say, Willy Brandt in Germany, where you had, you know, they were both incredibly interventionist, and they just disagreed about you know, a few marginal sort of social and foreign policy issues. And yeah, we're kind of seeing that more in the Republican Party where they've moved away from a sort of economic focus and to a sort of more social communitarian sort of basis uh, where they think the votes are. And you know, the other thing which David Shore, who you know, is very friendly to this piece has shown is that yeah, unfortunately, the polls tend to be really good for someone like me, who tends to be more, you know, economically, uh, you know, conservative, more socially liberal. Polls tend to be really good on economic expansion. People love when you ask them, "Would you like the child care?" We, even when you ask them occasionally, when people like David Brady of uh, Stanford asks, "Would you like the taxes to raise so much of this?" They often say, "Yes, I'm all for it." They're really bad on things like, you know, defund the police or. Uh, you know the trans, some of the transgender issues and others, and so of course the Republican Party is they using where, that. Right. They use that. That's where the the voters are generally for them, and the Democratic Party, uh, you know, surprisingly, in fact, has not embraced that the economic side sort of rhetoric as much. There's as much focus on the social issues because they show that the voter class, the wealthier, or sorry, the donor class, the wealthier tend to be much more, not surprisingly, socially concerned than they are economically. 
Um, because your average, you know, it's still true that when you survey someone coming out of the voting booth in these exit polls, economics, jobs, healthcare, always just dominate everything else. You know, abortion, occasionally terrorism, you know, gets up there, foreign policy in the midst of a war. But when you ask someone coming out of it, they really care about healthcare, jobs, and economic stuff. And that still dominates politics, but it's surprisingly semi-absent in the rhetoric from the reasons I described, that just it's not as important to Republicans. Ni Richard Nixon, who was similar to this, who was kind of you know, very left on a lot of you know, economic policies, just said, it's not a winning issue for Republicans. I'm not going to focus on that. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, only when you get some particularly bad issues like inflation, do you have someone like Ronald Reagan come in that can be a real full-throated sort of free marketer. Uh, where the average person gets concerned about the government regulations and so forth. But at the moment, that, that voice just isn't there. You were already having a more free market than Carter Ford were both more free market than uh, Nixon, though. Well, in the sense of... In the, so Reagan was, had a tailwind to go with. Okay, I guess, yeah, I guess the, 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 the issues of measuring. So, you know, one of the things that everyone sort of agrees on now, which might be extreme, but like is large support, and the deregulation in the 1970s, 80s was incredibly bipartisan. The trucking deregulation, the railroad airline. deregulation, airline deregulation, okay. banking deregulation was largely under Carter. Teddy Kennedy ran the, the airline deregulation. Ralph Nader was one of the biggest uh, proponents of airline deregulation. And because people said it was just a you know disaster. The, the neoliberal consensus there had just moved around. And so people use some of those examples to say, look, this is how we've moved free market orientation. And you could say that at some level, but then you do with some things people do to measure, like the size of the Code of Federal Regulations, which was about half the size in the 1970s. It's now 200,000 pages. And this is how bad we are at measuring sort of regulatory shifts or burden. We just count the number of pages or the number of words that say shall or must in these things. We say that's the burden of regulation. But from those measures, yeah, we have a lot more regulation on everything from how you, you know, dump water into the stream to how you uh, develop your home if it's near a wetland and so so like you know those are again I that's what maybe obviously I emphasize the spending figures GDP because that's pretty clear the regulatory and other stuff like yeah we had the you know the deregulatory effects in the 1970s but that definitely seemed like a one-off and then we we kept going down the regulatory path uh, for the next 30 years for most Dima countries. last question well, I'm afraid that this question is going to be opening a can of worms. But <laughs> going back to what Greg was saying earlier, that, for example, the Republicans, now you find them conceding on a lot of uh, things that are not necessarily as much free market. So because they're both parties are playing both candidates on at, at every level, they're playing the median voter uh, theorem, and they're playing it very well, right? And you're banking even on all of these uh, voters at the tails that they're not going to agree with you, but they're closer to you anyway, right? So the entire problem of polarization is the two-party system that we have. And this is why I ask about the non-voters, because we don't have a system where non-voting cast a vote against the two parties. Like, let's say you're a registered Democrat, and you don't vote in that election. That counts as a strike against the candidate, right? That, that doesn't count, and maybe if you had well, that's basically trying to break up this two-party system in a in, in way where the no vote counts as a strike is just one way to reduce this ability for, now I actually have a reward for maybe not rolling over on something that I don't believe in or whatever it is. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I'm all with you in the sense that would give a lot more ability to express diverse preferences, and mm -hmm. you see that in, say, the German elections that we just yeah. had. Uh, with a lot more different degrees and the Free Democrats and then the Social Democrats and Christian, all that. So you have a, that ability to separate some of those issues. Uh, you know, the problem is, and I, I think I'm going to mangle the name, but it's Duverger's Law, which is the old political scientist truism, that when you have a first-past-the-post electoral system, it tends to coalesce into two parties for the simple reason that any third party tends to be a spoiler in that system, and therefore there's a desire to reincorporate that party. Because if you're a median voter and you vote for the third party and that causes your party to lose, generally you're angry at that. Mm -hmm. And so you'll see something like Ralph Nader then get reincorporated in the Democratic Party. And that's doubly true when you have a presidential system like we do, where the president is a single figure that's elected nationally that has to, any thir a third party is definitely going to be a spoiler to them, while you could have some individual, say, congressman elected from third parties with a strong president system like we have in America, 
that's going to just make it that much difficult for any third party to spread. So, you know, I, I'm with you under our constitutional system. You know, probably just not going to happen because you're just so going to see. People what about rail. keeping the two parties, but having the no the non vote counts as a strike against the candidate if you're registered as a Republican, it counts as a strike against that candidate, and the opposite is true. And if you don't generate enough vote, then they go off for a runoff cycle. I'll have to, I'll have to think, that's a, yeah. that's a tough one, because then you'd still need the other guy or other girl to be in there to win the election uh, if you're voting against them. So I'll have to think about that yeah. <laughs> yeah, Just to, to comment on that, the, there's attempts now for this uh, uh, intensity of preferences and, and rank order yeah. type stuff yeah. going on. And it's a mess. <laughs> we, we saw this with the Adams election exactly. in New York. And it's very it complicated. It goes back to, to the uh, arrows and possibility yes. theorem that in, a, yep. you know, in an electoral system, there's actually no coherent way to express public preferences, and that will always be the truth, uh, which always means for those more you know, free market liberty-minded among us that uh, the political system is not going to be a great uh, expression of actual preferences out there. So... Reduce nice. its influence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. On that note, uh, thanks, Judge, for joining us. And I uh, hope to see you all next time in the free lunch. And just to remind everyone, the views uh, described in this podcast are our own, not necessarily the University of Texas. Thank you. Thank you.